0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here is your host, Moyez Jiwa. Dr. Neil Nandi is a gastroenterologist based in the U.S. In this podcast, he explains why he chose medicine as a career. He talks about how we can innovate for improvement and why he is particularly hopeful for the future of healthcare. Here to share his perspective is Dr. Neil Nandi. Neil, you're very welcome to this conversation. I'm delighted to make the connection and to meet a fellow clinician on the other side of the pond.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Likewise, it's an honour to be on your programme.
0: Let's start our conversation there. And I know that you are a clinician. I've asked this question of so many of our guests and I get a different answer every time. Why medicine? Why did you choose to go into what is now probably one of the toughest professions
1: there is? I'll start by telling you why I went into medicine by telling you what I'd do if I didn't do medicine. I'd be a teacher. And I honestly thought that I would not become a doctor growing up. I had certain expectations and pressures to do something medical, science, But I didn't have physicians or doctors around me growing up, not at all. But rather, I I always loved science and math. I loved art, but I loved the concept of teaching. And I had some great teachers growing up through grade school, in high school, college. I even had an opportunity to go to medical school early, one of these combined programs we have here in the States when you're 17 where you get guaranteed acceptance. And much to my family's chagrin, I turned it down at that age, because I, I really wasn't sure that I wanted to become a doctor. And it wasn't until I had done a lot of work through college and volunteer and mission work and stuff that I realized that maybe medicine is the field for me to be in service. But even then, I continued to teach. And so, what's evolved, and, and without giving the entire life story, is I've found that in medicine, I can not only serve and, and take care of patients and, and be a physician but I can continue to teach. And so I love interacting, not just teaching my medical students, residents and fellows, but I, I, get, I have the privilege of teaching other doctors and other types of clinicians. And the most fun is when I get to teach patients because usually my approach to teaching them in clinic is different from the approach or experience they've had with most of the other clinicians they've had in their life. And, I love it when patients walk away and they're like, oh, wow, you know, nobody ever explained it to me that way. Nobody's ever talked to me that way. Before. Now I actually understand it. I think that's what I love about medicine is that I get to teach and learn. There's always, of, of course, the life of service and, and why I went into GI and IBD, but I think the crux of it, it's, it's a selfish thing where I get to learn, and I get to teach.
0: That's fantastic. And I have heard this story before. I have heard that People did what they did later on because of good high school teaching and even Mm. primary school teaching. Can you remember any particular individual that inspired you and what it was about them that was so inspiring?
1: Yeah, I mean, 100%. There's one name that always comes up to the top of my brain, and that is Mrs. Holleridge, Connie Holleridge. She was my fifth grade teacher. I went to school in a town called Fort Worth, Texas, near Dallas. And she was my fifth grade teacher, and she was the teacher to hundreds, if not thousands of students in her career. But she had, at that time, an unorthodox approach to teaching, which nowadays people embrace. But it was out of the box thinking, more applied science, applied learning. And her approach, her personality, she made it fun. Um, She didn't make it over serious, you know, to excel. She just made education and teaching and interaction fun. And it was okay to be wrong. And and so those are themes and concepts that made me rethink about the pressures of academic excellence, even at age 10. But it continued on through all my other levels of training after that, that that's how education and teaching should be fun. She was so impressive that she made a huge impact on my brother's career. And my brother had an opportunity, he's three years younger than I, when he was a senior in high school to recognize a teacher that had shaped his career. And we both, he looked, he asked me, and he, he wasn't asking, he knew who I would say, we both agreed, Mrs. Holleridge, and he wrote a letter and President Clinton at the time invited her to the White House to get a, a Presidential Medal of Honor. And, and we were just so elated that everyone else, including the President, could see after vetting her that she was this amazing teacher. That's, that's how amazing Mrs. Holleridge has been in my life and many other students' lives.
0: Thank you so much yeah. for sharing that. Now that you are a doctor and we recognize in medicine that, in fact, that was a very smart way to teach somebody because the brain is constantly firing, even when you're not focusing on a task, you're not trying to do something. And what it's doing in the background often is creating solutions that are going to be really helpful when you finally focus back on what you're trying to do, a problem that you're trying to solve. So in actual fact, what your teacher was doing was allowing your whole brain to function and your whole brain to bring itself to the task at hand.
1: 100%. Yeah. She, She was amazing. She was ahead of her time. And she really taught us like real life skills and skills that we didn't realize we'd be applying in other aspects of our education. And that was the genius, one of the geniuses behind her teaching.
0: She was, and here you are making your impact on the world, which is also amazing. Let's dive into that. Why GI medicine? Why did you take this particular path having, why not something like family medicine? I mean, that would have been far cooler, right?
1: Well, family medicine is fantastic. I actually went to med school initially to become a pediatrician. And growing up, I um, and still, I used to be an avid magician. And I had this fanciness that I, and, I, and I, I was a science geek. So I thought I was going to become a pediatric oncologist, magician on the wards, kind of a Patch Adams, who I didn't know at the time who that was until later. But I went to medical school and, you know, unfortunately, I did not enjoy my pediatrics rotation. I, I went into the surgical field next, my surgical rotations, not expecting to love it, but absolutely loving surgical anatomy and technique and the procedure. there is a cognitive aspect. Surgeons don't get enough credit for the cognitive aspect of planning a surgery. And then I did my internal medicine rotations. And when I told you I didn't have doctors growing up, it it was really later on, much later in life that I, when I went to medical school, that I started shadowing and seeing other clinicians and how they treated their patients and what their daily lives were like. Then I started to understand that one of the reasons why I went into medicine was because I enjoy relationships. And there are all sorts of stereotypes about different fields of medicine. they are stereotypes. They're not true. But holistically, you think that as surgeons, you may not have as chronic or as in-depth a relationship. You can. You absolutely can as a surgeon. But traditionally speaking, stereotypically speaking. But as an internist, I could, I could create those relationships. And I love those relationships. And what drew me to GI? I changed my mind a million times, hematology, pulmonary care, I mean, endocrinology, you know, but eventually I loved GI because of the massive amounts of disease states. All the same symptoms, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation, but a hundred different causes for each. And so I loved the cognitive aspect of taking history. I, I grew up loving Sherlock Holmes, still do. And so I could put my OR cap on and do emergent procedures and save people from bleeding varices or ulcers, et cetera. But I enjoy the Sherlock Holmes cap. You can do physical exam and diagnosis, look for cues in and, and IBD, extraintestinal manifestation, put it all together and really come to not just a diagnosis, but a plan. And the IBD journey is next. It turns out that uh, GI was not only a great fit, as that GI idea seeded in my head, I learned that my father had Crohn's. And I had not known that for the majority of my life. For the first two decades of my life, I had no idea that my father had had Crohn's. And then I I met family and friends who had inflammatory bowel disease. And ultimately, it was just good mentors and this culmination of experiences where I thought I could make a difference. So I settled on a career and really focused on a career dedicated to Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and had the right mentors to get me the right tools and frame of mind where I could develop a practice where I've really had the benefit, the privilege now for, you know, after almost 12 years where I've developed these chronic relationships and with my patients and I've seen them have kids and graduate school, become parents, you know, go on, get a new job. I mean, so many life milestones that their IBD was holding them back from. So GI, IBD has become a a passionate career for me and a very rewarding one.
0: The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. As you're speaking and I'm watching you on screen, I can see the passion. I can see the lights. I can see what you often see in in new graduates. You see that in people who are newly in the career. What we find as people get to 10, 12 years is they start to experience the burnout, the pressures of working in a system that's chronically underfunded and poorly organized often. How are you managing that side of things? How do we navigate the pressures of working in that system?
1: Glad you asked that. I'll be brutally honest. It has not been easy to be an IBD specialist in, in this era. It wasn't easy before the pandemic, and certainly the pandemic has catalyzed certain changes in healthcare culture and clinician-patient interaction and health and resource utilization that are strained that have made it very hard to not succumb to burnout. I would be lying to you, my friend, if I told you that I did not experience burnout. The height of my burnout was really during the first two years of the pandemic. And honestly, the first six months weren't too bad. There were a lot of disruptions in care, which allowed me to do other things while taking care of my patients. But then healthcare caught up. Patient access really opened up. And what happened was we saw a bottleneck effect where patient care that had been halted. Now you saw this. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the story. Massive number of patients, more demand and supply of clinic time and resources. And so all our time was spent in patient care and i'm not complaining about that really what a good thing of the healthcare pandemic was it catalyzed digital access to healthcare therapeutics it catalyzed and cemented the electronic portal and electronic medical records as a door an access door to clinicians which i think as a patient is excellent i think they deserve access i think they deserve convenience they deserve at at their fingertips but what's unfortunate on the healthcare clinician side, and patients are very empathetic towards this, and very understanding that it is a lot more demand on clinicians and their staff. So the, the burden wasn't just on me as a doctor to keep up with messages and the amount of data, labs, imaging, scope, all this coming in, but with messages. It was also on my support team, the nurses, pharmacists, physician assistants, dietitians, mental health therapists that support my work they were also being bombarded too. So as a team, we were all being bombarded. So I think that's actually where I have seen burden as a healthcare specialist that the EMR, not an an old story, particularly patient access to clinicians has been the biggest burden. Now, the, the question is, how do you combat that? How do you not succumb to that pressure? Well, one, I love what I do and I love my patients dearly. So I will do anything for my patients. But I had to decide that I needed my mental health too and some balance. So what my team and I, and this is the credit of my team, we developed conferences, algorithms, almost like Q&A algorithms. The patient calls with this, these are the questions to ask in detail, this is what you should do. If they call in with a flare and diarrhea, ask about recent antibiotics, NSAIDs, alcohol excess, drug interruption from insurance labs, et cetera, or joblessness, right, interrupting access to drug, and then order a C. diff, stool studies, maybe some blood work if indicated, and then expedite a clinic visit if necessary. All these things, right, that's just an example. But that helped, and everyone pulled together as a team. But it's still far from perfect. The the EMR is one of those things that needs to be completely rewritten by the likes of Apple. Uh, in order to make it you know, actually user-friendly and not a burden and more u- u- utilitarian and functional.
0: I want to go down deeper into your personal approach to this, because while ever the system is reconfiguring and you've got a different way of accessing doctors and perhaps even artificial intelligence might come into this and be able to assist in some way, how do you, Neil, do this yourself? How do you maintain the passion that you're fifth grade teacher brought into your life all those years ago?
1: You know, it's going to be very cliche. When I say I love what I do, I love what I do. And I could be good at a million other things, I think, humbly speaking, I think I could, I'm blessed with that skill that I could be good at a million other things. But I'm happiest doing what I do. And I think I've taken that to heart. Mentor after mentor, who's much wiser than I, has always said, learn how to say no to too many things. That's a lesson that I've learned and continue to learn, but have not mastered, but I've done better. And then what you say yes to, that's how you decide what you say yes to, what you love the most. And you single that out. And it's cliche, but it's real. If you do something that you absolutely dislike, that you know you're burned out and tired from, and you're forced to do it a hundred times a day, of course you're going to get burned out. Not only get burned out, you're going to do a really bad job. Your patients will be able to tell, you'll be able to tell, and then you'll start to dislike yourself. And then you take that negative energy out in different ways on on family and friends, unbeknownst to yourself. I've seen that happen uh, professionally in people's careers. And that's why I've tried to focus, let me only focus on the things I'm truly passionate about. Let me do the things I'm committed to that I would do for free. And that has really helped me not burn out from the toll. But again, it's also building that team culture. Because I know I've learned that as Neil Nandi, I cannot do everything. I have to delegate and I have to trust other people. And part of that is not only finding the right team members, but investing my time to educate and teach them my way of thinking, my approach, listening to them when they give feedback, which is often very right on the money and to refine the approach, giving them control to, okay, if they're going to be my ambassador or delegate to my patient. It's our patient and that I trust them and work with them, that they can represent me and I trust their ability to communicate or assess for me. So I do that with my own colleagues, my own peer, physician peers, but I do that with my nurses, my my PAs, my pharmacists. And that's really important. I think as docs, it's very hard. We, we've kind of grown up in this type A culture. Whether you were born type A or not, the, the schooling and, and traditional path to Becoming an attending just before then is really all guided by you. And although team based care and systems based practice are part of the six pillars of education and in graduate medical education across the world, when it comes to your own degree and livelihood, most of that time you're really just relying on yourself until you get out into the workforce where you have a staff that you really help command, lead. You probably haven't developed those or been forced to develop those team building skills and how to trust others and how to delegate others, you're used to doing it yourself, or otherwise, it won't get done. And that leads to burnout. So I think that is something that necessarily hasn't come easiest to me, but I've learned the value of delegation and trusting my team. That's by trusting them to help me take care of those patients, help me manage those messages, and and triage authorization, phone calls, etc. That trust has helped me build a team that I can relax when I'm out of the office.
0: The words for free, that's not words that the public would associate largely with the medical profession. They would expect everything that we do to have a price tag. And to an extent, we as medics feed into that because we have a price tag to everything that we do. And the lifestyles that people have often reflect the fact that they have that earning capacity when you say for free, how do you balance that with the desire for the financial success, which is natural and is a type A characteristic? How do you balance that?
1: You know, I'm an academics. And in academics, in in the US, we uh, have a unit RVU, revenue producing unit, productivity measure, etc. And there's a very small bonus system tied to that. But for the large part, we are salary. And Depending on your specialty and niche, you may not be really that well incentivized to make a bonus. So, in my own pay structure, I'm salaried. And if I were to leave my practice and go into private practice, I could make about two to three times what I make now. But I'm happy with making what I make, which is a very comfortable, blessed, financially stable. And again, my academic career, my day to day routine is full of other benefits that I perceive value in that are beyond finance, which are the ability to teach, the ability to do research, the ability to, in a a given day, to to go from a very interesting journal club right into a a fellow-run clinic where I supervise, and then go into endoscopic procedures. And then I get to travel across the country and very, very lucky to be asked to speak and, and teach other people. And then I participate in all sorts of you know exciting conferences and I get to write papers and things that I find that you can't put a price tag on. So to me, this is the trade-off where I may not have that. But I, in, in Neil Nandi's lived life experience, where I grew up in a very financially stable but middle-class family that was based off the hard work of two loving immigrant parents where I needed nothing. We were not rich. We had enough. So for me, that's all I needed. That's my benchmark for how I grow up is all I need. So th- my need for more financial success, the way I've been raised and lived my life, is not maybe someone else's idea of financial success. And for me, it's not worth the trade-off. For me, I know clinically that what I love is my current variety of my day-to-day and my, and my, pro- my professional experiences are so different from someone else who may not have desired a career in academics that's good for them if that's what they desire. The difference though might be that for some people who are more financially motivated, they may not have as I do the same love of their career. Everyone's different. Everyone has to judge for themselves. When I say for free, meaning that it has a different, two different contexts. One is I'm happy with what I make and I'm okay with making less. If I get to, to make an impact and have a, have a wonderful variety, variety of things to do in my career. And there's the other part of this, which is most clinicians, whether you're private practice or not, invest much more time than the compensation financially will ever work out to hours to dollar-wise. That's the time that they spend on weekends or nights or rounds or that extra phone call to call their patients. None of that is incentivized. And none none of that is reimbursed right now. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that right now it's not accounted for. And so we do that, we make those extra phone calls, we spend that extra time, and there's a sacrifice there of time. I think the currency with which most clinicians are not valued for is the time they give up away from their personal lives for patient care or professional work, administrative work. That is the time that I think all of us, when we talk about work t- work-life balance, that's the time that we're talking about. To me, that type of, of time off is very valuable and and i'm very lucky that i give some of that time away happily because of i love what i do enough that i will spend some of my personal time whether that's good work-life balance i'm still working on that right now
0: the journal of health design fostering collaboration amplifying the voice of health advocates growing a network to improve outcomes in health A medical degree does not qualify you as a good manager. We know this because there are many appalling managers who have a medical degree. You are a good manager. Was that a skill that you acquired or was that a skill that seemed to come naturally to you?
1: A little bit of both. I think I learned that I had some leadership skills, but I didn't know how to find my voice until late high school or college. But growing up, I was shy. I told you I used to be a magician and and still practice magic. And magic actually helped me come out of my shell as a nervous public speaker. How to become an audience manager, if you will, because you have to manage your audience, manage your spectators, so they can't see your sleight of hand and your misdirection. Taught me how to engage people and talk to people and connect to people. But that took time, so it didn't really help me blossom until I got to college where I had more freedom and independence to learn who I was. It took many more years still through inter-residency where I started to understand that I needed to delegate in order to work. And so in medical school, there wasn't as much delegation because a lot of it was first two years classroom-based, second two years rotation. And you saw other people delegate, when you rotated with your residents and your attendings. But once you became a resident, then you understood, I have to delegate. I'm the senior resident on this team. I have to delegate these tasks to take care of the patients. And doing that started to be a concrete example of how I learned that. And so it's a little bit of both. I found my voice on how to be a leader and how to connect to people so that I could give direction and delegate without being bossy and by galvanizing a team spirit, more camaraderie than tyrannical or dictatorial being
0: salaried means that somebody else is paying the bills and that often comes with managing an employee so you're a good manager are you a good employee are you do you take easily to being managed to having kpis to having performance reviews and are you comfortable with the idea that someone else is setting the strategy for the organization that you are part of, how do you square that? Because it may well be that there are occasions when you disagree with the direction that's being taken.
1: I am a good employer, or wherever I am in that hierarchy, right? But wherever you are, there's someone above you, multi-level above you. And so as far as being an employee and being instructed or what to do, I am initially very happy and open to understanding a plan, buying into it, but only if they seek my critical feedback. And good leaders above me do seek feedback because they re- good leaders recognize that their plan can be fine-tuned and can be improved by those that they are leading. I'm lucky in the system I'm at, in my university, I've got amazing chiefs um, at my hospital in the division of GI, great you know, chair of medicine, who actually proactively listen. These are actually in my entire career probably some of the best leaders I've ever had and it took a few years to find those good leaders to be honest with you and now that we have them I feel more supported and heard however they also have people that they answer to more senior even to them and so when you ask how do I work with a system where I may contest those that are leading me when I disagree with them I'm fairly vocal I have issues. With how we do healthcare today, severe issues that stem from a supply and demand, eat what you kill, do more, see more, bill more model of care, that is the current model of care at least across the majority of the United States. And what is not happening is looking at population health. And so I see an issue with the way we practice care. So not only will I raise my voice, I will also come up with a solution. And I think that's not unique to me, but differentiates me still from the majority of the pack that I'm not here yet to just complain, but to offer credible practical solutions and help be a part of the the team that makes concrete solutions, makes them, you know, committed to an uh, not just an idea, but a tangible product. So what I'm getting at is currently I'm Focusing, I have some meetings coming up in three weeks to work on this idea of looking at population health. I think that you and I can take better care of 50 patients, 5-0, 5 0, than 5,000 patients. Would you agree? 100%. There's no question that if our time is less divided, we can spend more time and make sure that every quality metric, every influenza vaccine, every single check mark can be ticked, and that we can also address the patient's psychosocial factors, their mental health, their diet, their nutrition, their sexual health, all these things that people talk about yet we don't make we're not allowed time to make for in the clinic. Now, we can't see we can do more than see 50 patients. but I think that we don't use software technology in a savvy way to optimize clinician schedules or to, to optimize the patient panel, One thing I see is a problem. I'm in a chronic disease state, inflammatory bowel disease. I see that clinicians continue, not all, but they continue to see new patients. And these patients don't go away. They don't get cured. They're managed, they're treated, they can be made better, but they need follow up. And healthy patients may be seen once or twice a year, ill patients every six to eight or 12 weeks. But if you continue to see new patients, new patients, new patients, and have no outlet for the healthy ones, then the old patients or the sick patients can't even get back in to see you. And they start overwhelming the EMR, the phone system, the urgent care, the emergency rooms. And now that patient panel is really not well taken care of. And I see that there's a potential for medical error, for lack of oversight, for lack of clinical follow-up, for malignancies to develop or other complications of care. So, I have witnessed these things all throughout healthcare my entire career at different institutions. And I'm very tired of how healthcare mandates you see more news without a plan for how to manage the olds. In healthcare, we don't have enough clinicians like MD, DO providers in the states. We don't have enough to support our population. We graduate more medical students a year than there are residency spots, so they don't even become full doctors. It's an it's an atrocity. It's, it's sad for their career and sad for the state of healthcare. And then we don't even have enough professors to train nurses in nursing schools or physician assistant schools. So how do we get enough extenders to be clinician extend you know extenders of the of the doctor, if you will? So I see that there is this problem. We're past the tipping point. It's already a catastrophe that's happened where we don't have enough clinicians, we have more patients, chronic illness rates are going up, and we need to start focusing on graduating more well-trained clinicians by the hordes, and we need to shift to a system of population health where a physician is responsible for outcome metrics based on a fixed sickness of a population of a thousand patients. If they're really healthy, maybe you see you know, 2,000 patients, if they're really sick, maybe you see a 1,000 patients. We have metrics to determine both. And then you're graded, basically, on how well you take care of that population. And I think that's the future of how we should shape healthcare ethically to deliver better health outcomes and strike work-life balance. I
0: want to sound something that is an observation as a family physician, and that is that often. What we are dealing with are the social determinants of health, which have nothing to do with medicine. So, if you look at rates of alcohol abuse, if you look at the rates of obesity and the consumption of carbohydrates and all the rest of it, the drivers for that in the population have nothing to do with medicine and everything to do with commerce and many other things. The rates of sedentary behaviors that we're now observing, the use of cars, the lack of opportunities to exercise and do other things that keep us healthy and well. That has nothing to do with medicine and I just do wonder occasionally whether we as doctors, if we put ourselves in the position of being responsible for the outcome metrics and say it's my responsibility to make sure that these people are healthy, whether we're taking on a responsibility for something that we couldn't possibly control because A lot of what's driving the behaviors of the population, what's nudging them. If you look at BJ Fogg's Model B, behavior is a factor of motivation, ability, and triggers. If you look at the triggers for those behaviors, they are largely out of our control. And therefore, we may in fact be taking on responsibilities that are not really properly ours.
1: I can definitely see that vantage point. However, I do feel that it is our responsibility to address them when you mentioned the raising rates of alcohol, dependence, sedentariness, lack of exercise, obesity there are other things there right that you were that you could we didn't you know get to mention, but the rising rates of anxiety and depression, the rising rates of suicide, the rising rates of gun violence these are actually the world's vital statistics, if we, if the human body is measured by blood pressure, heart rate, and temperature, and respiratory rate, and saturation, we are looking at other metrics that look at the sickness of the of the global health. But I do think that while we, an individual clinician, cannot solve the world's problems, we are in the position to influence our individual patient's health. And so I do a lot of motivational interviewing. In, in my IBD patients. We have a health visit where the patient's complete remission. They're in deep remission. They feel great. They look great. There's no disease. We're giving high fives. I don't use it as an opportunity for a quick five-minute, oh, I'm done with that one, on to the next. I use that as an opportunity to do preventative health. And we go down our checklist not in a boring way. We do education. We talk about vaccines and how we can, you know, we talk about fitness. We talk about the, the work of nutrition and how it affects inflammation in the body, we talk about, proactively talk about obesity and losing the gut, we talk about smoking behaviors, and we actually proactively screen through health digital questionnaires on mental health, and then we take a minute, when, when it's appropriate, and I develop that relationship with the patient, talk about sexual health. And these things are, many of them are well beyond direct corollaries to IBD. But they are very, very much a part of the chronic health patient experience, the, all these aspects of life, sexual health, mental health, physical health, substance, lack of diet, lack of exercise. They're all tied to the physical, the, the health well-being. If you're not well, you may not treat your body well. If you're healthy and well, you may take it for granted and still not treat your body well. So I actually think it's incredibly important that we motivate our patients and educate them and find their unique push point to motivate them to a life of fitness, nutrition, mental, physical, spiritual health because ultimately you're developing a patient's resilience as a human being to be able to withstand environmental stressors, be it mental or physical, that take the toll out on them on their disease state. Everything is related. So while individual clinicians, we cannot solve all of these complex global processes, we cannot make those the world's vital statistics all better overnight. In my opinion, if we do not individually work on our individual patients one by one, we will not make a difference. When you can change one patient's behavior, you have now not just affected that one individual, you've gone out and motivated them to become a change maker in their own world. They can go out and spread that motivation to their best friend, their spouse, their loved one, their family member, their child, They can go on to amplify that.
0: And in fact, you've proved it already because your teacher is the one who's responsible for your being here and us having this conversation and you speaking through this podcast to the network. By changing your attitudes, your behaviors, your choices, that teacher has made an enormous difference to your patients and all the community that comes thereafter. Now I want to end our conversation with one very interesting observation. And that is that, we, and we did mention this earlier, medical
1: interactive gaming. What, what is that? So that is a new era. Everyone loves to play games, right? I don't know a single person who actually doesn't love to play some game, be it simple or complex. But the idea is, what if we could make learning fun? What if we could teach patients about colon prep? by by making it fun, you know, or a disease state. And so, you know, they already do this with kids' video games and adults play the games, digital storytelling, where you have an avatar going through a storybook in a game, a video game. What if we could do the same with patients and put them and have them teach an avatar through through gaming? And so that's actually an idea that I would love to continue to explore. Virtual reality is one of the latest digital therapeutics that we have where virtual reality is being exposed to be immersive for all sorts of things from meditation and cognitive behavioral therapy. Wouldn't it be nice to have patients immerse themselves in a disease state, actually visualize and understand what inflammation is and teach them? That's a burgeoning idea that I think you'll see more of as technology becomes less costly. And we can put some of these digital games into patients' hands, to teach them about diabetes or teach them about how to prep for a colonoscopy, et cetera. <laughs>
0: Neil, I can see the muscles that your teacher developed all those years ago, working again in terms of your creativity and your freshness of ideas and your willingness to solve complex problems with innovative solutions. It's been a joy spending time with you, Neil. And thank you so much for joining me on the Health Design Podcast.
1: It's been wonderful to speak with you too. Thank you so much for having me.
0: The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.